0: And if you'll open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, we're going to be looking uh, this Sunday and next Sunday at the very unique um, description that Luke provides, as opposed to the other gospel writers of Jesus as a 12-year-old. You don't really see that in Matthew, Mark, or John. And what we'll talk about next week is how they go on a journey. They go on a, to a feast and come back and forget him. You know, it's like literally like a Home Alone episode where like where's Jesus, you know, and they have to go back and that whole discussion takes place. But what I've I've chosen to do today is just take the beginning statements made and the end statement made, the kind of the bookends of that of that particular event, and focus on that. And then next week we'll get into the the details of Jesus as a 12 year old. So we're looking at Luke chapter 2 verses 39 and 40. And then very similarly, you'll see the same words in verse 52. So hear now the word of God. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. And then verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and men. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would come to richly and deeply understand why it is that by your Spirit, Luke would record these events in the life of the young Jesus. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would instruct us about who you are and what you've accomplished and what type of increase took place that we might see these things and learn from these things, that they might provide an example for us and teach us what you've accomplished. So we pray these things in your name. Amen. Thomas Sowell, the economist, defines an intellectual, quote, intellectual, as one whose end products are ideas with no objective rules or accountability. I get the feeling he didn't really like intellectuals. Well, he's still alive, so he doesn't like intellectuals. But by this standard, just so you understand what I'm getting at, by this standard, if you're an engineer or if you're a brain surgeon, you don't fall into the category of an intellectual, even though you might be smarter than an intellectual. Intellectuals, according to Sowell, only care about what other intellectuals think. So if you're, a, if you're a deconstructionist, you only care about what other deconstructionists think. You're not accountable. There's no way to measure whether or not you failed or succeeded. You're just saying stuff. I have to say, I found that definition useful when scrolling untethered theologians on the Internet. They, they are, generally speaking, not answerable to any council. They're not answerable to any institution. They can write, they can podcast, whatever they please, without fear of repercussion. Now, I have to say, in one sense, I think this is fine. I think people should be able to voice their personal opinions. I'm not against people giving their opinions. But in another sense, I think it's highly flammable. That that people feel so free to offer such random opinions about the things of God. And I have to say, many of these opinions historically are heresies. I was reading one refutation of Calvinism where they were sourcing Marcion as their resource The Marcionites were heretics. I mean, they're historical heretics, but this person's making the argument against Calvin using the Marcionites. And I'm like, do people even know the history behind this? I think all of this is a testimony to how we, as a culture, just don't take the most important of all disciplines seriously. We just don't take it seriously seriously. I think people are less inclined, although people do this, are less inclined to offer medical advice if they're not, you know, a healthcare professional. People are less inclined to offer legal advice if they're not a lawyer or somehow in the legal profession. People kind of go, well, I don't want to give medical advice. I don't want to give legal advice. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a lawyer. But when it comes to the things of God, with with heaven and hell, hanging in the balance, forms of quackery seem endless. Everybody's got an opinion. Now, let me tell you, there was a time in history when all of this was taken much more seriously, where where if you said wrong things about God, you faced consequences. Now, this hit me when I was studying our current text, Which begins with which almost seems to be a mere transition of thought. Verse 39, so when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, talking about Mary and Joseph, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. Now, Luke doesn't go into what Matthew goes into with Egypt. Luke's got a different focus in terms of his message. But you look at this, right? And he's like, okay, they did everything they had to do, then they moved on. The the temptation is to get into the meat of the passage, right? Okay, transition. They moved on. They went to Galilee. That's the temptation. But something hit me this week when a friend, they're a Facebook friend, but they're actually a real friend also, posted her opinion on the very controversial, he gets us Christian ad that ran during the Super Bowl. Now, I'm not going to weigh in on that ad. I didn't see it. So I don't really really know. But this friend of mine, longtime friend, just took it upon herself to begin her own ministry. Like, she's just got her own ministry going. And uh, she posted her opinion on the ad. And then the comments started coming. And what jumped out at me as I was reading the comments was, and I don't know if this was implied in the ad, because one, one of the people who didn't like the ad said something along the lines of, the ad wasn't aimed at evangelizing unbelievers as much as it was aimed at chastising the church, or chastising Christians. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Like I said, I didn't see it. But the comments were open criticisms of the church. The church doesn't reach out. The church is unloving. The church is judgmental. The church is self-centered and on and on. I mean, it was just an attack upon the church. I I find it a bit ironic how people who are so, so judge, how people can be so judgmental of judgmentalism. (laughs) The, The comfort at which you can just judge the entire institution of the church. Now let me just stop for a second because I've been in the ministry for a long time, and I'm also aware of the pain that poor decisions in the church, especially its leadership, can cause. I'm not unaware of that. I'm not unaware of the fact that that people who are wounded by the church—it's a deep wound, and it hits them at a very a core nerve. So, so you know, we, we as church leaders. And you as church members need to take that to heart, because what's going on here when we gather together is very deep. But let me tell you this at the same time. One is hard-pressed to find a church that had descended in almost every category as low as the church that Jesus Christ was born into. Just let me, let me share with you the words of Jesus just a few years later about the, the clergy during that era. Jesus said they, paced, they would place heavy burdens on the shoulders of men. They did their works to be seen by others. They loved the best places in the feasts. They shut up the kingdom of heaven Against men. He said, like, you go to their church, they're shutting the kingdom of heaven up against you. They devoured widows' houses. They're, they and their followers, Jesus said, were sons of hell. He called them whitewashed tombs of dead men's bones. In other words, clean on the outside, dead on the inside, and the list goes on and on and on. But it was that church that Mary and Joseph performed all things according to the law of the Lord. A church which was full of sinful and corrupt leaders did not keep Mary and Joseph from having Jesus circumcised. They didn't say, well, we're not going to have them circumcised because the leaders in this church are so messed up. Mary and Joseph somehow continued to participate in her purification. They didn't say things like, well, you know what? When that church purifies itself, then we'll involve ourselves in the purification. They didn't do that. They faithfully presented Jesus as the first born with an offering, right? A pair of turtle doves, two young pigeons. They, they, they fulfilled their duties. They brought Jesus to the temple, which Jesus would later call what? A den of thieves to do for him according to the custom of the law. See, what I'm trying to explain here is that a bent church did not keep Mary and Joseph from performing all the things according to the law of the Lord. Now, I think a good question for us to ask ourselves when I say all of this is, why? Why would they still participate in a church that had become so corrupt? Now, let me just preface the answer to that question with the the recognition that it is possible for a church to descend morally and spiritually to a place where they are no longer a church at all and, as Jesus says in Revelation, actually become a synagogue of Satan. It is possible for that to happen. I think we've seen that happen with churches. And, you know, I have to say, I'm always, you know, since every church is on a trajectory, I'm always asking myself, what direction are we taking? That down the road are we headed in that direction? I think the Westminster Confession, chapter 25, paragraph 5, says it well. The purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. You know, let's let's just take that to heart, right? The purest church, there is no perfect church. And some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. So that is possible. At the same time, there's a great promise in the Bible that God will preserve his church. There will, there will always be a church. We see that in Genesis chapter 12, where in God's covenant promise he says, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you. It's, we see that in the teaching of Jesus where he talks about the church and how the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church is something that God will preserve until the end of time. That's why the paragraph in Westminster Confession continge, continues, nevertheless, there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. You see, Mary and Joseph fulfilled all their religious duties because the church that God had preserved, with all of its warts, with all of its carbuncles, with all of its deficiencies in terms of personality, is his church. I don't know, some of you, you know, a lot of parents in the room, right? Your kids aren't perfect, but you know what? They're your kids, right? Like, you start saying negative things about my kids. I know my kids aren't perfect, but you know what? They're my kids. I know the church isn't perfect, but God's going, you know what? It's my church, and that church, his church, and this is when I start reading these negative comments, I'm, I'm wondering how, how, what God's response to this, because it is his church paid for at a great price. Acts twenty twenty eight. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. He's kind of talking to the leaders here, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, and talking to the elders, talking to the deacons, To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Well, I mean, first and foremost, let's not lose the message. Shepherds in Christ's church are to take heed. Shepherds in the church should not fall under that earlier definition of intellectual that Thomas Sowell had mentioned. Shepherds in the church need to be accountable. You know, I, I get up here individually and say stuff, right? But, but our elder board, our session, if I start going off the rails, they have an obligation to confront me and, if need be, fire me. I'm accountable. I can't just get up here and say whatever I want. And, and, if, and if they don't do that, you have a responsibility, to take it to the Presbytery and take it to the General Assembly and go, you know what, we need Pastor Paul out of there. He's gone crazy. There's got to be accountability. Take heed. We see that in the Bible, right? The Jerusalem Council. They all got together. It wasn't just one individual church. They all got together and began to discuss what's going on in the churches. And we need to have that kind of accountability one to another because there is a greater accountability. If we don't judge ourselves, God says, I'll judge you. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So what we learn, I mean, if we take the time to read the Bible and what it says about church and members and elders and what have you, is that members are to subject themselves to elders, and elders are accountable ultimately to God. We have other accountable people who are accountable, but ultimately to God. And my point here is, the dismissal of the church as a means of grace and as a means to advance the kingdom of God is simply not an option. The idea that, that, like, you know, to, to just chastise the church and walk away and do your own thing is just not an option. I mean, it's not a biblical option. This is like people who choose not to get married because, you know, so many marriages end a divorce. And so they blame the institution instead of their own sinfulness. There's nothing wrong with marriage, problem is us. <laughs> that is true. Now, I've chosen, as I said, to approach this with the two ends, uh, the bookends, as it were, of this passage. The beginning and the end emphasize the growth of Christ, Jesus growing in spirit, wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and men. But I just want us to all notice that the context of this, at least the faithfulness, To achieve this early on is within the context of Mary and Joseph fulfilling their religious duties and even what we're going to see next week is Jesus as a young man in the temple right so this is all within the context of dare I say organized religion that's where it all starts If you lose that, you begin to lose that which God has provided as the beans of grace in our lives. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. One of the great and critical doctrines of the Christian faith is coined in the Latin "Deum verum et hominem verum," which means truly God and truly man. Truly God, Jesus is truly God and truly man. These these you have two natures in one person, and they are inseparably joined in one person, and this is approached negatively because sometimes, sometimes it's hard to approach things positively. Some things are incomprehensible, some, like the Trinity. You know, these things, you know, they're, we have a hard time defining them in terms of, kind of some kind of positive statement, so oftentimes these are approached with negative statements. And this, this idea of the hypostatic union or Jesus being truly God and truly man is approached negatively without, it's saying, without conversion, composition, or confusion. And I not to get into the details of that, but briefly, the one nature does not become the other nature. The human nature doesn't become the godly nature and vice versa. It is not composed of the other nature, and the two natures aren't mixed together. They need to remain separate in our thinking. It is, it is a great error and a very common error to think of Jesus, the man, as more than a man. I mean, you've got to be honest. You've all, we've all thought that. I mean, I've thought that. I recall thinking, sure, he may be a man, but he's got the God card he could pull out anytime he wants. We think of him that way. All of this from birth. So he's got all of that, he's got that advantage from the very beginning. But let me tell you something about God if you don't know God doesn't grow, God doesn't become strong in spirit. God doesn't increase in wisdom. God is eternal and infinite in all of these things. So this is way different in terms of the human nature of Christ. It said of Jesus in Hebrews 2, 17 and 18, "...therefore in all things He had to be made like His brethren, that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God." to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Jesus is not to be thought of as some cold, holy other deity. He has all the feelings which belong to humankind. You know, I, as a pastor, I might sit with somebody and I try to, you know, somebody comes in and they're broken. I, you probably have this experience, right? And you, you want to try to understand their trial. You want to understand their, their pain. You want to understand their hurt. You want to understand their frustration. And, you know, and I found, you know, as years have gone on at some level because, you know, the, the scars of life, you begin to kind of go, okay, I'm, I'm kind of getting what you're going Through what your difficulty is. But I only get part way there. You know, so so often I'm like, yeah, I don't really get it. But God the Son knows the human condition. He knows its pains, its sorrows, its its heartaches, its limitations. I remember being very confused years ago that Jesus didn't know the hour of the apocalypse. You know, it's like, no, even the sun doesn't know this. I remember being very confused because I had that idea that Jesus, the man, was omniscient. Let me ask you a question. Omniscient means that you know everything. Is that an attribute of man? Or is it an attribute of God? I remember being questioned apologetically about in the garden where Jesus was like, is there a way for this cross to be avoided? Right? Right? Is there some way out, Father? Not, but not my will, but thy will be done. Somebody going, well, what's the deal? If he's God, he must have known. But Jesus was not omniscient as man. So he had that limitation even of knowledge as man. Which, which increased the suffering as man. So his understanding of the pain of humanity goes deeper than any one of us. The author of Hebrews will later write, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Just so you understand, sinfulness, though universal, is not necessary to humanity. There there was a period of time when Adam and Eve We're sinless. So it's a universal thing, but it's not a necessary thing. And when we read a passage like the text we're looking at this morning, we should learn what it takes to fight sin. Jesus was being prepared for the fight. He was being prepared for the victory. Now, we can't imitate the deity of Christ. But we can imitate the humanity of Christ. I don't know about you, but there was a time when I thought to myself, well, yeah, you know, I mean, we pray that, we even prayed this morning, like, deliver us from temptation. But Jesus doesn't really know temptation because, you know, he's never really been plagued with sin. The way we're plagued with sin. So he doesn't get it. But I saw a quote by C.S. Lewis, which I think sufficiently attacks this nonsense. It's kind of a long quote, but it's so rich, so let's read it. To, don't read it with me, but read it quietly, silently, like while I read aloud. He wrote, No man knows how bad he is until he's tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people Do not know what temptation means, this is an obvious lie, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not giving in. Just so you know, he's writing this in like the 40s, the Germans were the enemy during the time of Hitler, just so you know. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have always lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of evil impulse inside inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. That Jesus was strong in spirit, I think, testifies that as a man... He was in need of what the Spirit provides. We would see this in in its fullness when he was baptized, right? And the Spirit descends upon him like a dove. We are ever dependent on the Spirit of God to sanctify us. Jesus needed the Spirit. We need the Spirit. How do we access this? How does the Spirit work in our lives? Well, we already talked about the fact that they did all the things that God had commanded according to the law. But the way in the new covenant works, it works through his word, it works through his sacraments. The Holy Spirit, he works through prayer, worship, and the manifold means that God has provided for our growth. The Holy Spirit works through his church. And let me just add something here that might not be obvious. That one effective means of grace is the affliction or the suffering that God ordains in our lives. It's said of Jesus in Hebrews 2.10, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Those who would want to become strong in spirit should expect that it is not always a comfortable process. I think of preparation for ministry. I think of the, myself and students, you know, guys who want to be pastors, the challenge of the classroom. Or next week, we'll see Jesus sitting in the temple, right? Dialoguing with the leaders. So you've got the classroom. And I think they still have it today. When I was in college, you had the class, and then you had the lab, right? In the class, you open the book, But in the lab, you mix the chemicals, and they may blow up right in your face. And it's in the lab where God brings us where maybe we don't want to go in order to sanctify us. We are are still in an era in the life of Christ. This all ends with He finding favor with God and men. Finding favor with God and men. And you know what? We should, at some level, find favor with men. I mean, to be an elder, you have to have a good reputation among the outsiders. But there was going to come a time in the life of Christ when his ministry would begin that favor with men was going to turn. Verse 40 tells us that the child was filled with wisdom. In the Greek, it's a present passive participle. He was being filled with wisdom. Verse 52 talks about increased wisdom. Well, what is that anyway? What is wisdom? I think William Hendrickson gives us a good definition when he writes, what is wisdom? What is meant by it? That it includes knowledge is clear, but it far surpasses knowledge. It implies the ability and the desire to use this knowledge to the best advantage. The truly wise man is reaching for the highest goal and uses the most effective means to achieve it. I mean, it is knowledge, it's knowing right and wrong, but it's also knowing where do I put it, when do I say it, how do I apply it? James writes this, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Jesus was being filled with wisdom. Here's the deal. We're all being filled with something. It might be a good thing for you to examine, what are you being filled with? In Romans 1, we see the same word being used in regard to some pretty negative things. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. What are you being filled with? Because you're being filled with something. In the passage we're looking at this morning, Luke is comparing the growth of Jesus' stature. And stature can mean either size or age to his growth in wisdom with the grace of God. So what we're learning here is that it's a day-by-day process. This incremental, incremental growth that we see in Christ. So in the same way that a growing child could have a stunted growth based upon certain behaviors, there are things that can stunt your spiritual progress. What are they? Have you examined what it is in your life that is stunting your spiritual progress? Now, the verb that Luke uses in this progress is a very aggressive, this idea of increase, it's a very aggressive word. In its original sense, it meant to make one's, way forward by chopping away obstacles, or chopping ahead, chopping forward, as done by a pioneer. It's like you're, you're in the bush, and you got a machete, and you're just chopping away. What, it, what is in your life that needs to be chopped away? What, what is in your life that needs to be cleared in order for you to move forward? Because that's the way Jesus approached growing in wisdom. The things that were in the way got chopped away. I think rather than chopping them away, we just entertain them. We we just allow them to be part of the equation of our lives. When they need to be dispensed with. Let me get a little more specific. What are you reading? When I get together with other pastors, it's always the first question they ask me. So what are you reading? What are you listening to? What are you watching? What are you engaged in that is either clearing the way or in the way? Take a look. Things need to be chopped down. let me just conclude with this thought i think it's a mistake if we think that the pursuit of righteousness on the part of christ was merely to provide an example as valuable as that is i mean we we look at this you know and we we look at what jesus and i think we should look at his humanity and go good thing to follow i mean jesus more than once said follow my example washing the feet and what have you. There's things that we are to follow. But as we read earlier, I don't know if this jumped out at you, all of this was accomplished that he might make propitiation for the sins of the people, that he might appease the wrath of God. Here's the deal. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way. The baby Jesus was sinless. But the baby Jesus could not have gone to the cross for you. Twelve-year-old Jesus could not have gone to the cross for you. The 30-year-old Jesus was sinless, but he could not have gone to the cross for you. Why? Because he had to fulfill all righteousness. Why did he have to fulfill all righteousness? And that is... That is what he did do and what he did not do. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. And why did he have to fulfill all righteousness? Well, among many things, one was that so that righteousness that he achieved could be given to you. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We have to recognize that sinlessness is not the same as righteousness. This podium is sinless. It's certainly not righteous. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, in his, not only in his passive obedience of going to the cross, but his active obedience of doing all the things that were the right things to do, that when God would look at you who have faith in him, God would see the righteousness of Christ. I.H. Marshall notes, when Jesus next appears, when we see in chapter 3 in this gospel, it will be as one ready to be consecrated to his task. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we look at the growing Christ, that we would recognize all the things done by Mary and Joseph, all the things even next week done by him, to grow in, in wisdom and in this uh, knowledge through both learning and suffering that we might, Father, be willing to go through that which needs to be gone through in order to be conformed into his image in all things. So we do pray, Father, that you would grant us that, that above and beyond all things, we do pray that we would trust not in our victories but in his victory over death in His resurrection, and that great righteousness that belongs to those who call upon His name. Amen.